Hi, everyone. I'm Brad Pariello. I want to thank you all for coming, being with us tonight for our first journey to Raleigh in North Carolina. Thank you, Patrick, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, Patrick is the CEO of Cohere Medical, and uh, they make surgical sealants. Um, but uh, more germane to all of us here tonight, they are in the process of relocating from Pittsburgh to uh, Raleigh-Durham. And I wanted to ask Patrick first, why did you choose this area? Thank you. And were there other locations you looked at, and, and what was it about this area that really was the draw for you? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I think the main purpose for moving down here, Pittsburgh was a great uh, starting point for us, a great R&D town, very much a town that is behind any new technology. I, I give them a lot of credit. The state of Pennsylvania did a nice job with uh, the life sciences greenhouses. Uh, the life science, uh, the one that was life science based was in, was in Pittsburgh, and so it was very good to us when we started the business 10 years ago. However, as we have grown and now we're in our kind of up and running stage where we're PMA approved, we're in our beta launch in the US, we have a second product that's ready to go out the door. Uh, two things became very clear. One, it was really hard to recruit people to Pittsburgh because there's still a mindset that it was this old steel town and not being from there originally. Uh, I remember when I first went, I thought the same thing. It's gonna be this old kind of gray smokestacky place and it's not. Uh, but secondly, you have an airport that has gone from a thousand flights down to about, I don't know what the number is, 120. So it became really hard to get around, became really hard to recruit people. Uh, Raleigh, uh, quite frankly, has some of our vendors down here. The most important one to us is a sponsor here is Salesforce for Hire. We'll talk about them in a little bit. They made this their home, I think about seven, eight years ago. Started coming down here and started to see the, the vibrancy of the community. Uh, plus, the airport is literally from my house to the airport when I park. Through TSA and a cup of coffee in my hand is about 21 minutes. So, with all the traveling I do, I said I've got to move here. <laughs> uh, so, over the years, you've raised uh, quite a bit of money for Cohera, but the first money you raised all came from private investors. I believe it was a seven million round, which I think at the time was was quite large for being raised just from private investors. So, I wanted to ask what the rationale behind sort of going private with the first investment round. Sure. I will say, how many folks in the audience are small company, either COOs, CEOs, VPs, whatever, and starting a company? Can you just raise your hand? Okay, I'm gonna just give you one comment and you take it for what it's worth. <clears throat> Don't let anybody tell you it's like a fingerprint. Raising funds is, no one sets out to do you know, the MBA way, right, that you get on a whiteboard and someone chalks it up and says, oh, well, you're going to raise this much from this person. It takes a life of its own. And in our case, uh, we started out to do a small Series A round. Uh, the minimum was $4 million, and quite frankly, everyone in Pittsburgh thought we were crazy that we wouldn't get to four. We oversubscribed and brought in seven. And I think the real interesting part of our fundraise was the Series B. We had about 18 and a half million from a very large, if I said the name, everyone would shake their head and they know it, a very large, uh, not private equity, but a venture capital fund and a secondary fund that was going to come in. And quite frankly, they wanted too much. It was right before the collapse. So that was August of 08. So you can imagine things were starting to bubble, but it hadn't broken yet. And 
I'll never forget, we had, we had a convertible note round that we always did. We brought in about $10 million, and I was looking to bring in another 10, so we were gonna oversubscribe. And I had a high net worth individual who was from the Pittsburgh market that said, I really want to invest, I really want to invest, but I was kind of this cocky CEO now. I said, well, I've got this big, you know, um, you know uh, VC coming in, I don't need this local guy. And, I got the terms from the VC and they wanted my kidneys and my, at the time, two of my kids' kidneys and, and an eyeball and we were walking across this bridge going to lunch and I kind of tried to get rid of this private investor and I said, look, at the end of the day, if you want to come in, the minimum is six million. And within two steps he said, that's not a problem, when can I give you a check? And hence became our high net worth individual fundraising strategy right there on the Roberto Clemente Bridge. And we just continued to do that. Fortunately, here on this last round, that was our through an A through a D, uh, when we were commercializing, we were very fortunate to raise uh, 50 million with KKR as our lead investor, um, and uh, with additional money from our private investors. So that's quite a shift going from private investors, a high net worth, sounds like a pretty good angel, to, to 50 million from, from a private equity. What, what drove that sort of shift? Is it just because where, that's where the money was? or uh, I think very much so. I, I think, again, anyone who's been out in this business this in the last uh, 10 years, when we started Cohera in 2006, and our friends from Avamed and Bio can attest to this, if you looked at the Ernst & Young figures and the various figures that was out there, to start a company, in our case, a PMA product, it was usually between six and seven years between the liquidity event and or PMA approval. Uh, that's now 12. And so, right, you know, that tectonic shift happened right when we were about two and three years old. Um, and, you know, it uh, became one of those necessary things. And quite frankly, our existing investors being high net worth individuals, uh, we only had about 11 investors made up about 85% of the dollars. We're getting a little tired. And so we, we made a decision to look at bringing in some what we call professional money. And we've been very, very uh, happy with KKR so far. They're a really good investment group. Okay. So let's turn to Tissue Glue, uh, which is now PMA approved. It was quite a journey to get there. Um, had a kind of a narrow win with an FDA panel hearing, uh, despite two US pivotals and two European feasibility trials and you know, CE marks in September 2011. So I wanted to sort of dive in a little bit on, on your perspective on that process and, and sort of what drove the, those milestones. Okay, um, so uh, do you guys want to hear like the inside baseball stuff or do you want me oh, to yeah. kind of drone on on the, okay. Because you know, it's kind of tough, everyone's eating and I don't know if you're just eating to go, but I, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get inside baseball. Look, I, I think the comment's a good one uh, we got a 12 to 0 safety vote, and we won the panel on uh, the uh, efficacy outweighs the risk 5 to 4. Here's the interesting thing. As you guys know, when you do a PMA, you have to go to a 100-day meeting. At that 100-day meeting, you have a come-to-your-soul meeting with the FDA, and you say, okay, this is what we're going to the panel with, and the panel that we went to, the FDA, which was the broadest approval. So think about it. We got... A 5-4 win on the broadest approval, FDA turned around a month later and said, yes, you have great results in Europe, you have excellent safety results, you've got a panel win, but we're still going to be ultra-conservative and only give you the indication for what you did your clinical study on. Um, that's tough. 
Um, that is one of the reasons why I think in this space, it gets harder and harder. That's another example of, that's a, a, a blinded tax, right? No one's gonna go on the evening news and say, oh, we just taxed you the medical device tax, but that's a tax that now we have to do some other supplements that we're doing. And by the way, we are doing that. We have over 200 cases in a no-drain mastectomy study uh, for tissue glue. So can imagine now all the women who suffer from uh, breast cancer and mastectomies, you know, one of the most important or most dreadful parts of that is beside the surgery is the post-operative care. Um, and so we have a huge win with that. So the bottom line is we won that. It then took another seven months to get the approvable letter or really approved, approvable came about five months later and then two months later came the approved, approval letter. So there's a lot of machinations within FDA that just are slow. And I would like to plug, I, I do want to take a minute um, and, and really compliment Dr. Jeff Sherman and Dr. Bill Mazel, who, for at least for CDRH, are the two leaders in that group, some, two of the main leaders. I give them a lot of credit. They are really, really trying to change the culture there. I know, for those of you that maybe don't interact, I interact with the FDA almost weekly, um, and I will tell you that you have two great champions in those two folks. Good to know. So turning to the next product in your pipeline, which is Silas, which is under an uh, expedited access protocol with FDA. So lessons learned from tissue glue, how did that affect how you structured your trials and how you went to FDA to go to market with this? That's another great question. So <clears throat> Silas, so let me backtrack. So tissue glue was the first ever adhesive for inside the body that's ever been approved. Now there's been a plethora of products, right? There's been some great five-minute sealants. There's been cyanoacrylates for topical use. Uh, actually, Closure was here in Raleigh in the day. It was a great success story. But there's never been a degradable, soft, pliable adhesive for inside the body. And I always tell people it's Gorilla Glue for inside the body. But if you think about where we are, we're this tweener product. So we're a medical device, and we're in the medical device side of FDA, and they just don't know how to handle chemistry. Right, that's just, they're not used to that. So what we learned was how we go about doing our PMA. We always did a, um, you know, a staged uh, PMA where we would get different parts done way ahead of time. We entered into a very robust discussion with FDA early. We got the CE mark for Silas last year. And so we took that CE mark and we were the, and again, very proud to say we're the first ever expedited access pathway product. There are now, I think, eight or nine. Um, I, there's gonna be really big news here in the next month or so on Silas. I will tell you that it's very positive, the interaction we've had with them being in this expedited protocol, where I think Silas will be in U.S. trials here very soon. So it's made it, first that's 16 months ahead of schedule. So if we were doing a standard PMA in the U.S., we would be 16 months from this May when we would just be getting our IDE. Now do you credit just being in the expedited protocol for that, or, or is it things that you learned with tissue glue that you said, oh, I'm not gonna touch that wire again? No, that's a good point, and I think it's a combination of both. I, I think the, the expedited access pathway is, has been great. Again, it was one of those scenarios, being the first product, we got a little whipsawed, because again, you have the top of the ship where you've got Dr. Maisel and Sharon are like, okay, we're, we're turning this thing and we're not getting a bunch of data that's not needed, like nice to have, but need to have. 
But then under that, you have over, I don't know how many, someone may know the number, how many thousands of people work for FDA, and they're still, they're going that way, and the leadership's trying to turn the ship that way. So you've got to be really committed to uh, providing that guidance to FDA, and, I, and this is where I, I go back and give Dr. Maisel a lot of credit. Um, we built a relationship through this process, and we're pretty forthright. Um, I think some companies tend to defer too much. They say, well, FDA will get mad at us. I I'm here to tell you, if you don't stick up for yourself um, and, and point out the errors of the FDA, no one else will. So what can you tell us about what can, is lurking in the Cohera pipeline for your next products? Well, that's, there's a lot of fun stuff. We, we've got some really good skunk works. Right now, we have over 70 patents uh, between tissue glue, silus. We have a hernia adhesive, so you wouldn't need a hernia attacker at all. So think about we have these biologics now, and they degrade over time, but we're still jamming staples in or sutures that never go away. So we've figured out a problem to that. We're, right now, we're in the middle of an, an interesting collaboration with a company I can't say that's, imagine we have a meniscal adhesive that can be inserted um, under visualization and a glue that adheres underwater. And unlike tissue glue, it, where it goes away like a Viperol in 12 months to 15 months, this particular meniscal adhesive, you would just basically put the two pieces of meniscus together, put the adhesive in it, it fills in like self-leveling cement and then goes away in five or six years. And if you need to get it injected again in five or six years, so be it, but you don't lose your meniscus. So that's another really, really cool product. But we got two or three others as well. So you're 10 years in, pioneered some stuff. What would you do differently? What, what's, the, what's the one that wakes you up in the middle of the night and says, ooh? And, and what's the one where you wake up in the middle of the night and it gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling? Well, I, I will tell you, I, I was very fortunate to start my career um, first in the military in the U.S. Army where you learn you know, a lot about leadership and, and, and selfless dedication to your team. Um, but then I spent 14 years at J&J, which was great, right? A big company, very well run, very process oriented, taught me a lot about uh, how to get things done the right way. So I, I don't know if I would change anything. I really love what I do. I, I, I've always enjoyed this space. Uh, the part of being a CEO of a company like this is you, you never leave it, right? You guys all know in this room, you're driving home, you're thinking about it, you get an email at 10 o'clock at night, you can't sleep. Um, so, I, you know, I love what I do. I think the one thing I would change is, if I could, is just the negativeness of the perception of the, the common public to what we do. Um, it really amazes me as someone who's gonna be an end user here, hopefully, not hopefully, but not hopefully, but in the near future, um, I think we, can, we, we, we are all playing a little bit of Don Quixote, you know, yelling at drug companies or yelling at pharmaceutical or, uh, biotech companies or upset with medical devices. I always say to people, I, you know, I get asked all the time, I go see my mom who lives in Florida and I got one of her friends yells at me because her prescription went up 5%. I'm like, okay, the alternative is? And she's like, well, if I don't take this, I die. I'm like, okay, the alternative is? And we have to kind of stop for, you know, not forget that, that um, we have a responsibility to create things. And I think, <clears throat> I think the, the FDA, the government, and, and us, you know, and that's where I give a lot of credit to the AvMed folks that are here. I think they've done a great job when it comes to the medical device tax. Uh, that has been a, a job killer extraordinaire. 
And, and again, it's not one of those things that you can sit there and put a template on it for the evening news and say, because of the device tax, we lost 2.5 million jobs. What it does is the venture capital community, the private equity community says, okay, now I've got a device tax and it's really not 2.5%. That's on dollar one, don't forget. So when you amortize that and you figure out what it's like pre-revenue, I mean, it's really like a 15 to 20% tax. That is not easy for a small company. And so then the big guys look at it and say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let these bake a little longer because if they run out of funds, I get them for the song and the dance. I kinda, kinda went all over the map on that, I no, That's okay, because that leads me to one of my next questions, which is do you think it's coming back after the two-year moratorium? You know, that's a great question. Um, I gotta tell you this, I, I've, for the first time in my life, have not paid attention to the primaries very much. When you look at it from afar, it, it scares me, right? Um, I got, someone sent me a Facebook post now, on one side, you have someone who's talking about everything for free, and someone said, you know, the cheese in the mousetrap is free. And that's the, there's, two, there's two parts to that, right? You can get it or you can get your head snapped off. And we've got another side where, I, you know, I just don't know where we're coming. I, I'm concerned about policy decisions as opposed to partisan decisions. What's the right policy for the country? Not what's the right, you know, particular thing I have to do to make you know, my second segment better. Look, if the medical device tax was used and it was gonna pay down debt or it was gonna help innovation, I'm all for it. But it's gonna do none of the above. And that's, that's the problem. So hopefully, I, I just, I don't see it coming back, but I didn't see other things either, so. <laughs> so I know you're a big champion of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship, so I wanted to ask what you think the biggest challenge facing a medtech entrepreneur today is and what are sort of three things that could be changed to sort of improve the, the landscape for them? Wow, remind me of the second part of that question if I, if I want to. Okay. I would say the hardest thing today is there are just so many walls right now. And you look at, okay, just I, again, maybe someone knows, I don't know the exact number, the number of venture capital firms that had funds in 2006 versus today, I mean, I see Bill in the audience. Hey, Bill, how you doing? You know, we, we see each other out there quite a bit, and I, I, I would tell you that the number of firms that have funds, like real funds, over 100 million, maybe over 200 million, I think it's one-tenth of what it was in 2006 or 2007. So now you've just shrunk that pie, and there's more people going after less funds. And those funds technically are bigger. So now you see private equity kind of coming down a little bit, right? So they're coming into pre-revenue. KKR came into us. They have a, a group that does pre-revenue companies. But then you take a little bit of a hit, right? That's it's not pretty when you're closing that round. You guys will all see that. There are sometimes you take a half a step back to take two or three steps forward. So I think the hardest thing facing a, a younger company today is everyone's smart now to know it's not just six years, it's 12 years. So if you go out with a business plan and say, yeah, we're going to be, um, unless you're a 510K, and even there, I would challenge you. But if you go out and say, I've got a PMA, and we're going to turn a profit in six years, you're probably not going to get past the, hey, how you doing stage. Um, and I think the same thing holds true. I don't know what the number is for 510Ks. Um, <clears throat> I would say the three pieces of advice I would give to any entrepreneur is, one, you've got to have an incredibly supportive spouse. Uh, whether you're married, whether you're dating, I don't care what it is. Um, you know, you've got to have someone that, that totally gets um, 
that you are going to be consumed in different pockets of your life. Sometimes it could be two years, three years, all at a time. I mean, I'm looking at the last, my kids are now, I started the company when my oldest was two months old. I now have a 10, an 8, and a 5-year-old. And, I, you know, I look at the pocket, this last 18 months of raising $50 million, getting a, a PMA, doing the CE mark, getting a, a, an expedited access pathway, and moving the company. I just, it's 24 hours a day. So I'd say you have to have a really good spouse. You have to love what you do. Because if you're doing this to make dollars quickly in the medical device space, I've got news for you. It's a rare bird. There are not a lot of whole, whole lot of WhatsApps out there. We were talking about that. I mean, 18 billion, you know, for 30 people for something that goes away. I, I, I struggle with that, right? I mean, more power to them. I'm the biggest capitalist out there. But if you're looking to, to flip a company, I think those days are gone. I do think I, I do see a turnaround. Um, I think a lot of the bigger companies and the mid-sized companies are realizing, hey, it's really hard to innovate, period. It's even harder to innovate in a big company with processes and politics and all that. So I think that's starting, I think that ship is starting to turn a little bit. Uh, and I think the third thing is just have fun. I mean, it, it, there are days it just stinks. Um, I can't tell you how many times I walked out of my office at 2 o'clock in the morning and uh, walk into the car and I'm like, why, why am I driving home? I was going to stay on the couch. Um, and just thinking, man, I got to get my resume together. Then there are days I walk out and, and out of my feet don't even touch the ground. You know, you do something that's never been done before. And that's what I tell my team. You know, we, we've stayed together pretty much by and large. Um, and I said, think about how do you live your dash? You know, when you, when you are dead and gone, how do your kids remember you? How do you remember you? The dollars are only one part of the equation. If you make a lot of money, more power to you, that's great. But if you do something that's never been done before, and that's what I tell my team, we're the first ever company ever to have an internal degradable adhesive. Doesn't sound sexy, it's not a catheter, it's a, you know, or a stent or curing cancer, but if you think all the places that could be used, I mean, we're just touching you know, the tip of the, of the iceberg here, so it's a lot of fun. So what do you do, what's your secret for <clears throat> making the highs not too high and the lows not too low and sort of navigating that balance? Man, I don't think there's a secret. Uh, I, I tell you one thing, I, I had a friend, when I lived in Australia, a really good friend of mine was a jackaroo, and a jackaroo is a cowboy. And this guy was a really unique character. College educated, went out and did the jackaroo thing for five years, made a bunch of money, came back, he got his MBA, got on with J&J, &J. we became really good friends when I was down there. And his dad took us out for, for beers one night and said, one day you're going to have kids. I'm single down there. You know, life's great. Asian currency crisis. I'm making like 40% more dollars. Life's good. And um, he said something to me. He goes, whenever you leave work, and you go home, drive around a little bit if you have to, go walk around the block, but your wife, and it's a woman, your husband, um, your wife and kids have not seen you all day. And if the first thing they see is you pissed off and angry, that's the imprint they have of you. So... I've really tried hard to do that because there are times you're driving home and you're like, it took me an hour to get 10 minutes because I drove around for 45 minutes, right? You know, kind of like Jeremy Piven in um, uh, Entourage, you know, I'm doing them, everything's good, <laughs> life is good. Um, but, you know, try to make it happy when you go home because, you know, they're seeing you do something different too, so you don't want to bring them down. So just try to be a little bit more level-headed on that stuff.
Well, Patrick Daly, I want to thank you for joining us tonight Thanks and for taking me. the time to, to chat with us. All right. Thank you.